So John 11, 36 to 44 is our text for this morning. 36 and 37 essentially outline for us who was there. They remind us who was there. It was a mixed crowd. There was, of course, Martha and Mary and Lazarus were not prone to forget them. There was Jesus, of course. But then there was this mixed multitude. We see in verse 36, the Jews saying, see how he loved him. And in this context, in in John chapter uh, 11, in the first portion, the Jews actually doesn't have a pejorative context. It's talking about the people from Jerusalem. Many times in John's gospel, the Jews is speaking of the religious leaders who are by and large against Jesus. But in this section, it's actually just simply making the point that there were a number of people from Jerusalem proper. As I have said a few times as we've made our way through John chapter 11, Bethany, where they were, was really just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. So approximately the distance from where we are now to Shaphat Wildi. So it wasn't a great insurmountable distance from Jerusalem to there. They were in close proximity. And the point that John is bringing out is that there were many people there from Jerusalem. And he calls these people the Jews. So there are those who see Jesus weeping for Lazarus and they draw the only natural conclusion that people would expect when they see someone weeping at a funeral. See how he loved him. But then it says, it doesn't say and some of them said, it says but some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? This seems to be more accusatory than both Martha and Mary's statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As we saw as we examined that statement, neither Martha nor Mary is accusing Jesus of anything. They both know that even if Jesus had come, the moment that he got the message, he still would have arrived two days after Lazarus died. And so the sense of their statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died, is more of just a lament than an accusation. It's, it's that, I wish there was something we could have done. It's that kind of statement. It's an expression of faith in Jesus that, yes, if Jesus had been here, Jesus is unlike any other in that he actually could have done something about Lazarus's sickness and could have kept a man sick unto death from dying. It's an expression of faith. But it's also just a lament. It's not an accusation. Here, however, contrasted with this, see how he loved him. There does seem to be an accusation from some, and implicitly, some of the Jews. It says some of them. Some of who? The Jews mentioned in verse 36. So there was this multitude from Jerusalem. Some come and they say, oh, here, this must be a friend of Lazarus. See how he loved him. There's this generally positive view of Jesus, but then there's this subset of the Jews who say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? The sense of this is accusatory. Does he not have the power? Oh, he claims to have opened the eyes of the blind. If he really had opened the eyes of the blind, could he not also have kept this sick man from dying? Maybe he's a liar. Or, he did open the eyes of the blind, we all know that. Does he lack the power then? This is all he can do is just open the eyes of the blind. But I guess he's powerless in the face of death. 
Whatever the exact sense of it, this seems to be more of an accusatory statement. So here we have Jesus at Bethany, obviously with Martha and Mary. Lazarus is in the tomb. But then there's this multitude of people from Jerusalem around, which was the cause for concern in the first place, that the disciples hesitated to come back to Bethany because they said, you just came from there and they were trying to kill you. Are you going to go again to such close proximity to Jerusalem? Remember that they were at least a two-day journey away, and here they are now as close to Jerusalem as we are to Shaphat Wildi. All these Jews are present, about to witness whatever Jesus is going to do, and some of them are accusatory and hostile to Jesus. So this is all just context. 38 and 39, again, are context, setting up what is about to happen. There is a reminder about what has already transpired in the chapter, and then there is something new in 38 and 39. In 38, we are reminded again that Jesus was deeply moved. We talked about this last week. Jesus is indignant in the face of death and the sin that caused it. Jesus doesn't accept death as a normal part of life's cycle. That yes, well, you know, it's not pleasant to us, but it's just a natural part of the cycle of this earth, the circle of life. It's just part of what we all go through, and plants spring up and then they wither, and you know, so it is with animals and with people, and we should just embrace it. And the more that we can just accept it and live in harmony with it, then the more peace we'll have in the face of death. This is the kind of nonsense that you hear spouted, not only from Eastern uh, religions, which believe in a mode of reincarnation, as opposed to it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But you hear this kind of nonsense spouted increasingly frequently from supposedly Christian pulpits, forgetting that the death is called in the scripture the last enemy. Death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. Death is something wrong with this world. It is, in a sense, not supposed to be this way. Of course, nothing is happening that is outside of God's decree, outside of God's plan, outside of God's purpose, etc., etc. But don't forget that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it without death and without sin. And sin is this unwelcome intruder into mankind's relationship with God. And God, being holy, has cursed mankind judicially, because of sin, such that we are now liable to death. Jesus comes face to face with this blight upon human existence and upon his otherwise good creation, death and implicitly the sin that caused it, and he is indignant and he grieves. We spoke of that, of that at length last week, and so I won't belabor the point, but just be reminded that Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. This is the mode that Jesus is in as he comes to the tomb. He's indignant. He's grieving as he comes to the tomb. And we see in verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, objecting. When Jesus says, take away the stone, objecting. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Martha, 
What about your confession? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha, what about your confession that even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha, what about your confession? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What about your hope, Martha? We're reminded here that alongside Martha's hope was hesitation. And that she was unsure what Jesus was going to do. And she was not sure whether it was too good to be true to hope that when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, he meant right now. Martha was not sure about that. And there was some hesitation mixed alongside her hope. And so here we are now coming to the tomb. There's Martha, there's Mary, there's Jesus, there is Lazarus, of course, inside the tomb, and there is, there are witnesses. There is a mixed multitude of people from Jerusalem, some of whom have a generally positive or at least neutral kind of view toward Jesus, see how he loved him, but others who kind of mock and scoff. Who is this guy? He's, not, he's nothing really impressive. Look, his friend is dead. What a healer he is. What an amazing healer and friend he is that he's let his friend die. Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Here we are now at the tomb. This is the context that 36, 37, 38, and 39 set. But something new also happens in verse 39 or something new is introduced into the narrative. We come now to the culmination of this narrative in John chapter 11, as well as actually to the culmination of John chapters 1 through 11, Jesus says, take away the stone. And so we've essentially been laying context for the last number of weeks. But here we are now at the culmination of this chapter, which is also at the same time, a culmination of chapters 1 through 11. This is Jesus' ultimate sign. This is the last thing that Jesus is going to do before he goes to the cross. Between here and the cross, there is no action of Jesus. It's just teaching of Jesus, words of Jesus, prayers of Jesus. This is the last thing that Jesus is going to do before he goes to the cross. And so the way that John has set up the book... This is the crescendo of Jesus' earthly actions, uh, apart, of course, from his death and resurrection, which are clearly the more ultimate crescendo of his work. But this is Jesus giving a visual, uh, tangible, uh, a real, visceral, illustration of what he has taught us, that he is the resurrection and the life. Take away the stone. A little more on this in a second, but before we get there, Jesus does a little bit of teaching. And you know why Jesus does a little bit of teaching? Because as soon as a dead man walks out of the grave, Nobody's going to be listening to anything he says anyway. 
you imagine, you imagine the kind of hype and fervor and utter chaos that there would be once Lazarus came out of the tomb. So Jesus doesn't interpret what happens after the fact. Jesus pre-interprets what is about to happen throughout John 11. And so we've been laying that foundation all the way through. And Jesus does just a little more here. In verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He says this to preclude two misunderstandings that people were liable to. One, he does not want the people to mistakenly think that he has not been sent by the Father and is not working in conjunction with the Father. And so he says, for this reason he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. When he calls Lazarus come out, and Lazarus comes out, he wants everybody to know that this is the Father and the Son working together. That's the first misunderstanding that he's trying to head off. The second misunderstanding that he's trying to head off is that that it is even a possibility that the Father might not hear the Son. He says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. So Jesus wants us to understand here that the works of the Father are the works of the Son. And that the works of the Son are the works of the Father. Jesus wants us to understand that there is no disunity within the Godhead. Jesus wants us to understand, rather, that as Jesus himself works, God is working. He said earlier on in the Gospel of John that... The works that, uh, I'm trying to remember the passage, I actually didn't write it down. It is, just give me one second here. Five, I believe. Yes, whatever, it says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, 519. And the sense of that, as I mentioned when we studied that section a while back, is not that the Son does similar things. Otherwise, we could actually say the same. Whatever the Father does, we, God's children, do likewise, if the sense of it is simply that he does similar things. Rather, what Jesus is actually saying is something stronger that doesn't always come across to us the way it should in the English. What the Father is doing, that very thing the Son is also doing, that is the sense of it in 519. And that's what Jesus wants to hammer home here in John chapter 11. That when he calls Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, the father is also acting. But he also wants everybody to know that it's not that sometimes the son prays to the father and the father doesn't listen and the father doesn't hear. He wants everybody who's around to understand that the father and the son work together. Again, this is Johannine Trinitarianism, the Trinitarian theology of John. 
again, this is an, em- an emphasis, a major theme in the book. So that's what's happening in 41 and 42. And now we come here to 40, which I kind of skipped over, because from here on out, we're going to kind of stay on the same theme. Jesus, again, teaches in 40 before he raises Lazarus. He teaches a little bit. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is reminding Martha of what has already transpired in this chapter. Now, if you look back over John chapter 11, you won't see that exact phrase. If you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. You won't find that exact phrase. So when Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's not saying that he said that explicit statement. And he's not quoting himself. But he's saying, conceptually, Martha, remember the things that we've talked about. The subject of our discussion and the substance of our discussion has been such that you should know by now, Martha, that when I say take away the stone, you're about to see the glory of God. You should know by now, Martha, that if you believe and if you respond in faith, you will see the glory of God. This is the sense of what's happening in verse 40. Way back in John chapter 11 and verse 4, Jesus said to the messenger who came to bring the message that Lazarus was ill, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I tend to think that Jesus knew or assumed that the messenger had relayed that exact thing to Martha. Because I think when he alludes to this concept of glory, later on in verse 40, I think he's assuming that Martha knows what he said to the messenger, that this is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he is assuming that she knows that whatever has happened to Lazarus and whatever is about to transpire with Lazarus, he's assuming that she knows it's for God's glory in order that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And he's assuming that she knows that he is the Son of God because she's confessed as much. In 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. He's assuming that she knows that her brother is about to be raised because he said in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And in that moment, she she misinterpreted it to mean, yes, I know that he will rise again on the last day. But how did Jesus respond to that? I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? After having that little exchange and then going to the tomb and then hearing Jesus say, take away the stone 
Jesus is expecting Martha to connect the dots by now. That Jesus isn't talking about the resurrection at the end of all things. Jesus is talking about right now. And Jesus has all along been soliciting faith from Martha, even before they came to the tomb. After Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What did he follow it with? Do you believe this? So all through this chapter, Jesus has been trying to speak hope into this tension between hope and hesitation. Jesus has been trying to fan into flame to take the bellows, as it were, and blow on the little spark, the little embers in Mary's heart that maybe, just maybe, he who is the resurrection and the life is going to raise her brother now. This is what Jesus has been doing through the chapter. And so he frames it this way in 40. Not that he said these exact words, but don't you see by now, Martha? Don't you understand by now? Did I not tell you, though perhaps not in so many words, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, the glory of God is about to be revealed in an astounding way. Jesus has said, take away the stone. Now, you or I could say, take away the stone. And if those listening to us were so inclined, they could obey. And they could respond with faith, as it were, to what we said, take away the stone. It would be an ill-advised and ill-founded faith, but someone could say, well, I believe. And somebody could take away the stone or dig up the coffin. Anyone can say that. But Jesus is about to say, Lazarus, come out. And when he says that, everybody who's standing by is about to see the glory of God. That's what this whole narrative has been driving towards. What is, it, what is this narrative for? It is for the glory of God, according to verse 4. That the Son of God might be glorified in it. That's what this whole narrative is for. And as Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And we read, the man who had died came out. Everyone who is standing around sees the glory of God. In John chapter 1, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. The things that Jesus said and did manifested to us His glory. He didn't become more glorious as He was on earth. 
but he did manifest to us his glory, such that we increasingly perceived him as glorious. He didn't change and and develop and become something glorious, but we perceived increasingly clearly his glory as he lived among us, as he spoke, as he taught, as he acted, and as these things were written down for us, who live many generations later, as we read what happened. And so as John's gospel goes on, the glory of Christ is manifested with increasing clarity. And so we begin in John chapter 1 and we read, okay, he was in the beginning with the Word. He was with God. He was God. We read all of these things. We read that he is the only Son from the Father, verse 14. In distinction from us, who are sons and daughters, there is a uniqueness to Christ, the only begotten Son. We read on about Jesus revealing, manifesting his glory. In chapter 2, verse 11, we read, This is the first of his signs after he turned water to wine. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So we begin and we have this theology of who Jesus is. And we... It's hard to top the profound things that are said of Jesus in John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God and was God. The only Son from the Father. The true light which gives light to everyone. Full of grace and truth, etc. It's hard to top those things. But all of that is just kind of theology. It can be kind of abstract. What we see, the first of Jesus' signs, turning water into wine. Now that is, that is powerful. I'm not trying to undermine it. None of us can do that. It's significant in its own right. And you can go back to the sermon I preached on that chapter and find out what is the significance of it and so on and so forth. But what I I just want to point out is this crescendo from John 1 to John 11. We see Jesus presented theologically in John chapter 1 as this glorious one who is in the beginning with God and was God and that he has made known to us his glory. We have seen his glory. But then as John gets into narrative, he starts with Jesus turning water into wine. And he finishes, in terms of Jesus' actions prior to the cross, with Jesus raising a man dead four days. Can't you see a crescendo then? If I said, what is the deepest longing of your heart? I could bet for every one of you in this room that it is not that there would be less water and more wine in your household or in your cupboard or in your pipes or whatever. You see, Jesus was doing something which was theologically significant. Jesus was doing something compassionate for 
the hosts of the wedding feast, which would have been embarrassing for them to run out. So he's doing something compassionate, he's doing something theologically significant. But isn't this much closer to the mark? Isn't this much closer to the mark of what is most important to us and to our hearts? In John chapter 11, he raises someone from the dead. Isn't that much closer to the mark of what we all really most deeply want? To live. The grief that we feel when a loved one dies is profound. Isn't it very, very close to what you most ultimately want? That Jesus would raise one of your loved ones from the dead? Perhaps you've lost a parent. Perhaps a sibling. Perhaps a child. Isn't it very, very close to what you most want and hope for? That they would live again? Or consider yourself what happens after death when they put you in the tomb, so to speak. More likely for us when they, they put us in a box and bury us six feet under or cremate us. What happens after that? Will you just be down there alone and cold and rot into oblivion, into non-existence? Will you be reincarnated as other religions teach us? And will you live again based on the karma of this life? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Will you be judged? What will happen to you because of the bad things you've done? What will you do with your sin? What will you do with your guilt? If you really think about these things, aren't they very, 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 very close to what you ultimately care about? And if they're not very, very, very close to what you ultimately care about, isn't what you ultimately care about off the mark? In other words, shouldn't these be the things that you ultimately care about? That you would live that your loved ones would live. Aren't these things very, very central? Not to knock the miracle in John chapter 2, but aren't these things very central in a way that turning water into wine isn't? Can't you see a culmination? And so here we see the glory of the Son of God who was in the beginning with the Father, with the Spirit, he who was in the beginning with God and was God. He who is the true light. He who is full of grace and truth. He who became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't just come into this world to make sure that we don't run out of wine at our wedding parties. He didn't come into this world merely to teach us theology. And you know, in this church, that we love theology. 
Theology is what you think about God, what you believe about God. It's important. But Jesus didn't come into this world merely so that we would know abstractly and intellectually that he is he who was in the beginning with God and was God. Jesus didn't come merely to teach us theology. Jesus didn't come merely to make sure we don't run out of wine. Jesus didn't come merely to open the eyes of the blind so that for the few remaining years we have in this world, we could see a little better. Jesus didn't come merely to make our legs work a little better until that day that they put us in the box. Jesus didn't come so that the crowds who had been with him for a long time and had nothing to eat could have full tummies while they, well, they heard some inspiring teaching. Jesus didn't come merely to feed the multitudes, heal the sick. Jesus didn't come merely to turn water into wine. Jesus came to make us live. John, in his retelling of Jesus' life and ministry, makes his narrative culminate in terms of the actions of Jesus with the resurrection. All of those other things that Jesus did are significant. They're signs of something greater than themselves. That the lame spiritually will walk, that the spiritually blind will see. That one day, there are foretastes also, that one day we who are physically lame will not be physically lame. That one day we who are physically blind will not be physically blind. They are those also. But the most, this most ultimate sign, this most ultimate sign is that even death will die. That the keys of death and hell, as we say earlier in the service, are to our Jesus given. That even something so ultimate as that is something that our Jesus can overcome. This is what it signifies in John chapter 11. And so the narrative in John 11 culminates here, but John chapters 1 through 11 also culminate here. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It would be hard to imagine, other than after Jesus' own resurrection, a moment in his earthly ministry in which he would more clearly behold the glory of the only begotten Son come down out of heaven from the Father. If you were standing there and you heard Jesus say to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And you heard Jesus say, take away the stone. And you heard Martha protest. And you heard Jesus say, did I not say to you that if you believe, 
you would see the glory of God? And if you saw them then, take away the stone. And if you heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come out, and if you saw Lazarus come out, would you not be blown away by the glory of the Son of God? You remember the centurion after Jesus died. Surely this man was the Son of God. Wouldn't you have felt in yourself the same kind of reaction? Wow. Wow, I cannot believe this. Surely this is the Son of God. Surely this is He who has come down from heaven. Surely this is the one who does the very works of the Father. Surely this is the resurrection and the life. Surely this is the Christ. This is the way that Jesus pre-interpreted the miracle for us. And so this is, these are the conclusions that we are to draw when the miracle actually happens. Wow, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He is He who has done something about the indignation of God and the grief of God over sin and death. He is He who has come into the world full of grace and truth for we who needed grace and truth, for we who were ignorant and plodding through this life in our ignorance and blindness. Jesus shows us what is true. He teaches us what is true. And we needed grace. We needed propitiation for our sins that we didn't deserve. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On Him was poured the wrath of God that rightly should have been ours. Grace. We needed righteousness that we couldn't earn. We needed someone, though they didn't owe it to us, we needed someone to give it to us. We needed grace. And we are clothed in the spotless wool of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We needed justification. We needed a judge who didn't owe it to us to pronounce us righteous. And God the Father, having given up the Son, and the Son not having His life taken from Him, but laying it down willingly, and having authority to take it up again, having taken it up again, the Father looks at us and justly pronounces us righteous for Christ's sake. We needed grace alongside truth, and Jesus has brought us both. He has taught us the theology of who He is and what He has done. And He has not just taught us the theology, but He has done something for us. He hasn't just given us, read us the label of the medicine bottle, but He's administered it to us, so to speak. Jesus... Glory is seen so clearly here at the end of John chapter 11. As he who gives life. He gives life by his death. By dying for us so that we might live. He wipes away our tears by crying for us. 
by entering into this world and doing something about the sin and death that causes us so much pain and being subject to life in a broken world as a man, possibly. It's by this means that he wipes away our tears. It's by going to the grave that he raises us from ours. But thanks be to God that he's not merely like someone who pushes another out of the way of a train and gets hit by that train and dies. A hero, yes, but also essentially a martyr. Never comes out of the grave again himself. Thanks be to God that Jesus has the keys to death and hell, not only for our sake, but for his own. And that he who laid down his life freely took it up again and lives forevermore and intercedes for us, speaks to the Father about us as implicitly in this passage, look at it again, implicitly he had spoken to the Father about Lazarus. Verse 41 says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. That implies that he had spoken to the Father about Lazarus. Christian, the Father ever speaks, pardon me, the Son ever speaks to the Father on your behalf too, as he spoke to the Father about Lazarus. And the Father always hears him. The works of the Son are the works of the Father. The works of the Father are the works of the Son. There's no division and disunity within the Godhead. But as it was God's purpose that Lazarus should live here in John chapter 11, it is God's purpose that we should similarly live. So Jesus came up out of the grave, rose, and ascended to the Father's right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for his people and therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God by faith in him. So let us put our faith in Christ Jesus. As Christians, let us be strengthened, let us be encouraged in our faith in Christ. And for any who are here among us this morning or maybe watching online who are not yet trusting in Christ, consider the glory manifest in John chapter 11, the glory of the Son of God who has the keys over death and hell, who is able to make even dead people live. Consider what he is able to do for you, what he promises to do in the gospel for all who put their trust in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection on their behalf.